Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now, I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I am married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I, I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online and, and I'm in a different part of the country. I, I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then. And you're re- Reenacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? I got an interesting email this week. He says, Thank you for taking my email in question. My girlfriend and I listened to you on the radio, and she respects. And she really respects what you have to say. So she knows I've been looking at a porn, and she knows that I can't seem to stop. But I don't think I have an addiction. What do you think? Okay, well, I'm Carol Jurgensen Sheep, a.k.a. Carol the Coach. And one of the things that I absolutely believe is that when a significant person in your life feels that you have a problem and believes that it possibly could be compulsive, you need to go in and see somebody who understands this disease, this illness, this disorder, to help you decide, do you have an issue? I mean, I know you may think, well, if you're in that business, you're going to be telling everybody they have a problem. But that is just not true. I meet many clients who are looking at porn And it is not compulsive, but it does bother somebody. And so they come in to say, do I have an issue? And if I'm looking at their assessment, I'm here to say, no, you don't. However, if it bothers a significant other, if you're living at home and it bothers your parents, if you're married and it bothers your wife or your husband, It definitely is a problem. It may not be sexual addiction, but it is a relational issue. So that's what I believe to be true. Not everybody suffers from sexual addiction. I would never, ever, ever want that um, identity 
on anybody who has this issue because let me tell you, this addiction is the hardest one to break. It's harder than crack cocaine. It's harder than heroin. It's harder than ecstasy. It's harder than meth. Um, a disorder. It is a compulsion. It is sexual problematic behavior that has many features to it. For instance, I bet if you're listening to the show and you have sexual addiction, you have wanted to stop. And you said to yourself, I am stopping. This is the last time I'm looking at porn. This is the last time I'm going to a massage parlor. This is the last time I'm on Craigslist looking for a quick high. And then, whether it's 10 minutes later, 20 minutes later, the next day, or the next week, you're back doing the exact same thing you did before, compulsive behavioral problems. That is an issue that doesn't go away. That requires that you, you use a whole host of recovery tools. And if you've gone to my YouTube channel, Sex Help with Carol the Coach, you will see video after video that helps to describe what you need to do to get healthy. What are the 10 recovery tools? How do you use, do you need to do? What books do you need to read? Who do you need to listen to? When do you need to up your game and go from your therapist to a certified sexual addiction therapist um, to an intensive program, to a workshop, to a residential treatment center? You know, when is enough enough and when do you up your treatment regimen? That is the question that I ask many, many of the guys that I work with. Now, the beautiful thing is that I see so many men and some women that really make strides in sexual addiction recovery. They do. And if they're single, they're making it work for them. And if they're in relationship for them, and it makes a huge difference in their relationship, they've got extra work to do because they have to right the wrongs in the relationship. And that can be very difficult. It can be very hard to ascertain how do you get healthy? What do you do? What do you do when you get healthy and your partner doesn't believe it? Or she actually appears angry that you're doing so well. Or you say the wrong thing and she says, you know what? You're arrogant. You don't have this program. You're not really working a solid recovery program. So I'm here to say that not only am I a sexual addiction therapist, but I'm also a recovery coach. I want to help you in your relationship. If you've got a relationship, you know, it takes a lot of skill to make it better. And that's why I just wrote, and currently it's being published, help.her.heal, an empathy workbook for sex addicts who want to help their partners get healthy.
And I am so excited to have written this book because it gives you a a step-by-step instructional guide as to what you can do to help your wife or husband heal. It's written as if it's for a man, sex addict, a male sex addict who is wanting his partner, a female, to heal. But I promise you, you can apply it in any genre. If you're a female sex addict, you can apply it to the male. If you're in a gay relationship, you can apply it with each other. It matters not because the skills are universal. Skills have to do with some simple communication techniques and some not-so-simple communication techniques. That's right. You know, I have to say to you, okay, do you know how to use reflective listening? Do you know how to mirror your partner, your sex addict or the partner? Do you know how to use AVR, which is an empathy formula? Acknowledging the issue, validating the feeling, and reassuring your partner that you're the new and improved. Do you know what to do to stay in good, healthy recovery? And do you know what it takes to sit with your partner as he or she reels and the damage, the collateral damage of what has been done. Well, this book will help you. And probably in the next couple of weeks, I'm going to tell you how you can pre-order it. I'm super excited to have written this book because I know that the guys that I work with, they need to know how to develop empathy. It's just that simple. And if you're a partner and you're listening to this, I want you to know it is absolutely okay and not codependent to buy this book for the addict. And I'm going to be doing some tutorials on how to use this material. So here's what I know to be true. Men aren't particularly readers, and sometimes they need to see videos to get it right. You know, that's why we're talking about all sorts of help people to get healthy. For instance, I am an EMDR therapist. I'm trained and certified. And EMDR stands for Eye Movement Desensitization Reprocessing. And tonight, we have an expert in the field, Sean Kispert. He's been helping sex addicts determine what were the negative things that they thought and said to themselves that led them to find behaviors that would reinforce their beliefs. Sean will explain how EMDR can change the maladaptive thoughts to feed the addiction. And actually, Sean was on my listserv, and Sean was contributing to a really incredible exchange with other professionals. And I said, Sean, I have to have you on the show. And Sean so graciously, graciously uh, agreed to come on. And so Sean is going to be talking about sex, shame, and secrets. 
and how EMDR can make that better. And that's what we all know is important. When I was doing my CFAP certification, interestingly enough, all my colleagues were saying, well, if you want to work with addicts, you've got to learn EMDR because they have a lot of issues to process. They have a lot of trauma in their past. And you've got to learn EMDR if you're going to expedite the process. And I'm like, oh, absolutely, I would love to do that. So that's when I got my next certification. And tonight, Sean is going to be talking about sex, shame, and secrets. Because of the culture that we're currently living in, you know, the 24-hour news, the reality TV, the Internet, there are so many ways to participate in secrets that involve sexuality, shame, and deceit. And I always say it's all about deception. So I'm so excited to be introducing Sean to you so that you can find out more about EMDR and how it can be helpful. Because I got to tell you, the more accessible everything becomes to humans, the more marketing professions need us to feel shame about who we are so that they can get us to buy their product. And we all know that sex addiction is prevalent because it is such a medication for filling that void of community, you know, it's for people that feel lonely, that feel bored, that feel shame, that feel guilt, that have things in their past that they don't know how to cope with. And Sean and and myself, we have made it our mission to help sex addicts who are traumatized to get healthy with EMDR. And this form of therapy speaks directly to how clients feel about themselves and helps them to identify where did they come from. You know, so oftentimes I get clients that say, why? Why did this happen to me? And I always say, hey, the why is not that important. Let's look at what. What can you do to get healthy? And EMDR oftentimes in just minutes, in just hours, in just a few sessions helps you to figure out where did your pain originate? Where did the shame come from? And what events in your life have contributed to the need to medicate? And so I am so happy to have Sean Kispert on the show because I'm telling you, EMDR is an amazing approach and Sean is an expert. So, Sean, welcome to the show. Hi, I'm glad to be here. Yes, I am so glad to have you. I mean, this is your genre. EMDR is your technique that you use to help addicts to get healthy 
and to figure out where did their initial source of shame and pain come from. And so tell us a little bit, how do you feel sex, shame, and secrets start? And then, of course, what do you think keeps them perpetuated? What keeps them going? You know, each person is different, and the longer that I do this work, the stranger it becomes because you think that you have a pigeonhole of where basic shame comes from when you start to talk to each person that comes in your office. And interestingly enough, the longer that you talk to them, the better you get to know them, the less clear it becomes. And so you're asking them, you know, what's going on? How are how's this functioning in your life? How are you not functioning in your life? And then you go to their family of origin and start to ask questions. And interestingly, it can be something as neglect, sexual abuse, abandonment, but it can also be something that you never saw coming. And it can be something very simple and small that has exploded in their brain um, and they're unable to cope. So the shame can come from anywhere. Absolutely. Can you give us an example of a client that you've had in your past where the shame just kind of came out of nowhere? They had no idea, he or she had no idea, that their past was contributing to sexual addiction. Sure, sure. So I have um, a man who owns his own company, and he came in to see me as a referral. And he said that he had been sexually addicted since he was 13 and it started with pornography and accelerated to prostitution, um, overseas prostitution, traveling there when he didn't even need to travel, um, his children's teachers, people in his church. Um, and he just came in and he just said, I can't believe I found you here in this town. I didn't even know there was anybody here. And I said, okay, well, what's going on? And he just sat in the chair and sobbed. It was really kind of scary at first because I thought, what is going on here? There has to be something deeper. Well, we talked for two or three sessions, and it never occurred to him, not one time, and all the therapists he'd been to and all the times that he tried to fix this himself, that he had been sexually abused by a babysitter when he was five, um, both by a male babysitter and a female babysitter, brother and sister. And he had never told anyone. And he just, wow. he had, he did not correlate at all. And once, once we started so talking about it. how did you figure that out, Sean? How did you figure that out, that that was the source of his issues? I just, I kept digging. I kept digging, and he didn't like me digging. Um, he thought he'd come in, and I would fix him. And I just kept digging, and he was like, well, because I like sex, well, because I like... And I said, no, you know, I, I really I really don't think so. You know, you're married for 20-something years. You have these two kids, and you see, you know, you keep telling me you have it all together. You own this company, but you're not happy. I can see it in your face. So let's go back and talk about memories that you have and let's go back and do a sexual timeline. Can you do that for me and bring that to me next week or email it to me? 
And so he did. And then as we were talking about it, he said, wait a minute, I have another memory. And there it was. And so the shame started right there. Yeah, it was interesting. It was. Yeah. It was very interesting. Because really, the sexual timeline and history gave you the basis or the groundwork for a memory that then came up, which had to do with him being molested. It did. And then you had something to work on, right? All that trauma. We really did, and we really started working. Um, That's kind of where the beginning of all of the training with Patrick Carnes comes in, is when you start to just, like the three prongs for me are what problems are you having in your life because of the secrets you're keeping And how are the consequences manifesting themselves? And I really don't see you until a consequence happens. And so we start talking about that first and then move on to family of origin and timelines before we ever get to EMDR. Because there's such, the secrets are so deep. And the person that has the issue has used every form of bargaining in their life that they're capable of using. And they only are here when the bargaining is not working anymore. Yeah, in other words, you're saying that really it's when they can no longer stand the pain by themselves and they know that they can't figure out what to do about it and they don't know the whys. And I I just mentioned that my clients always want to know the whys And sometimes that's not possible, but with EMDR, it really can help a client over a short period of time process the logjam of trauma that may have occurred in their life. EMDR is so amazing, and I would not believe that it was as amazing as it is had I not personally unlocked issues in my life as a result of EMDR therapy. And so that's what really fostered the interest to see if I could attach these to one another and see if we could have some growth quicker. And it it is mm. it's it's a it's an amazing experience first personally, you know, as the client but also as a clinician to watch the client unlock their own mind is it just doesn't get any better because then they're so they're so engaged they're like I did this and you're like you did good work you did it's amazing yeah and I really can relate to that because I do the work too and and so I want to ask you, as one professional to another, what, mm-hmm. what do you believe starts that shame cycle? How does that keep going? I think they want to. I think that the people that come in to see me, they want to be better. They just, they just have scripted in their mind what is palatable to the public. So they have scripted in their mind why they have behaved the way they have or who has hurt them 
or what, who they can blame. You know, they've just scripted it. And so when you work with people with EMDR, you start, you know, very small, developing containers for things they need to work on, but that you're not quite going to target. You you open, you um, develop a peaceful place for them. So if it gets too strenuous, you can ask them to go there. But really what you do is kind of work with them about, initially for me, I work with them about a targeted incident or something that is disturbing them currently. And we start with, okay, can you tell me about, usually they come in with an incident, like a, like a um, some sort of chaos has happened, or, or they're stuck, or we've been practicing together, working together for a year or two, and, and we get stuck on something. And so, I mean, I can give you a fascinating example today if you have time for that. Absolutely. Of how it I'd opens. love to hear Okay, so this happened. This is a lady I've been working with for a couple of years, and she is a female um, sex addict, and she has had moments of sobriety. But no, we have been unable to establish long-term sobriety. So I said, okay, we're going to work on EMDR, and she's been married for 25 or 30 years. And so I said, so we've been working through some um, core beliefs with EMDR, but we wanted to target a specific thing that is going on. And for her, she's married to her husband, but she is not sexually attracted to him. And so we've been processing this for a while now. And I said, well, let's, let's do EMDR processing around that specific belief. The negative belief is, I am not sexually attracted to my husband. So we start talking about it, and then we start the processing sequence. And so the incident is, I am not sexually attracted to my husband. And I say, on the disturbance level, how much does this disturb you? Zero to seven. Seven's the highest. She said, I'm at a nine. I'm, he actually disgusts me. Okay, So we go through the processing. And each time that we go through it and I stop, I say, okay, what's coming up? And remember, this is a long-term marriage. And she says, two months before we got married, I got pregnant. And he didn't want his family to know. And he took me and paid for me to have an abortion. Now, she's never told me this. She, she said she doesn't think about it. I said, okay, and so we're processing that. And she comes out with this flooding of story of how she has been angry at him for all of those years and has used sex with other people to punish him for doing that. And that was, I mean, that's, it was a long session, but that's just what came out of processing that in that belief that she had so it it was a really interesting session well i bet and i bet over the next couple of weeks you were able to determine what her negative cognition was and what her positive cognition was so mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about that 
What do you want to install in her? So her negative was that her, there were a couple negative thoughts. And the negative was, for her, I'm only good for sex. Her negative thought was, I'm not good enough for his family. I'm not good enough for him. And what did I, and then I said to her, okay, what 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 would be the positive belief when you what would you like to believe? What would you like to feel about this? And she said, well, I would like to know that I was secure with him and that he does love me. I would like to know that we've stayed together all this time and that we're generally happy and that we can work our way back to each other. I would like to know that this was just us being young and that we just didn't really know what to do. And so we processed all of that today. And when we were done, um, just for today, and then you know the processing goes on for days and days and days after. It can go on, you know, until it doesn't. But she she was um, at the you know, when we were starting to come down from the session before ending it, and I said, you know, you've done a remarkable job today, and I just want you to know that you're going to keep processing this, but you've done a remarkable, beautiful job. And she just kind of started crying, and she said, you know, I really do love him. I really I really do love him. We really do have a good life. And I thought that that, you know, she she came to that on her own. And it was uh, it was nice. It was nice for her. Well, absolutely. It sounds like she had processed the anger and the betrayal and the pain, and she realized that that opened up an opportunity for her to have grace and to forgive and to know that they were young and they were probably just doing the best they could with what they knew. That's right. And the interesting thing was is they have a pretty open you know, they can communicate. They 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 work on communication. And I said, do you think that you can go home? You know, you need to think about this and breathe for a little while, drive through, get yourself something to drink, go home, rest a little bit. But do you think you could have this conversation about the grace and about the age and about your rage? And she said, I know that I can. I know that he would hear me now. So sometimes they come in as a couple for some, you know, couples work. Um, and, and I know that he would listen to her. So I thought that was a, I thought they're doing some really good work. You know, she's really doing all of her work. Um, but she's got an incredible amount of big traumas, little traumas, complex trauma, PTSD. So um doing some amazing work and uh, the EMDR is not the panacea of everything but it is certainly a wonderful tool when you cannot open up what needs to be opened up yes and that's the magic behind this kind of work is that really it's like the unconscious and subconscious has locked away many of the stories, the feelings, and the beliefs, and EMDR through something called bilateral stimulation opens Mm -hmm. that up so that it can be processed. 
And I just thought, I've been told, I mean, I started this work because it works so well with trauma. And obviously, her having an abortion was a trauma, and she felt very, very abandoned. She did. And, And interestingly, whenever... I use, because I work with um, female sex addicts, male sex addicts, and also their partners. And then I do a partners group for men, for women, you know, addicts and partners. And interestingly, EMDR will work for any of them because they all have trauma. The partners have trauma from being in the relationship as long as they have the addicts have trauma because of things generally that happened to them before they got to that point. And they're also traumatized by their acting out. It's not a party for them either. So when you're, EMDR is just another tool, but just the processing and the, you know, just the reg- the body scanning, the regulation in their affect and just talking, I mean, sometimes they don't even feel their own body where their stress is or where their pain is. They're so in the problem. And EMDR does all of those things for them. And they're doing it themselves. So it's not really like the clinician. I mean, we're the facilitators. But it's their brain that's opening up their story. And it's their brain that is rewriting their story for them. And that's the glory of watching them walk this journey. It's it's just fascinating. Yeah, so tell me a little bit about your practice with sex addicts. For instance, um, what brings a sex addict to you? And I know everybody's different, but how much time do you typically spend with a sex addict and and treatment? So I live in Arkansas. I'm originally from the Chicago area, but I live in Arkansas. And so there's not a lot of CSET work in Arkansas. Um, I live in a town of, you know, 100, metro 150,000, and I'm the only one. So what brings somebody to me is, um, usually they've heard about me word of mouth or on the ITAP website or Psychology Today. Um, and so initially they came, they come in, um, either the partner comes in first or the addict, and it's just that they're in too much pain. It really is that they have been sitting at their computer one night and Googled and found me. And normally... Um, we do a lot of hard work, and we work about three years together. Some people I've had longer than three years, and we just do check-ins once a month. So three years is about average, um, and then we check in. And usually during that time, they, they, meet, with, they meet with me weekly, and they are also involved in a group. Well, and so you run the group yourself. I do. I facilitate. Well, actually, they run the group. I facilitate it. <laughs> they're they're pretty good. They yeah, they're very yeah. I do. Mm-hmm. 
You know, it's so funny because when I was uh, training, now what year did you get trained at, at ITAP? Um, gosh, I'd have to stand up and look. I think 2013 maybe? Mm-hmm. I was 2007, and I was sitting in a line. I was going through the cafeteria at Cumberland Ranch in Nashville, Tennessee, mm-hmm. and Patrick Carnes was right next to me, and I said three things. I said, hey, Patrick, I think it's a problem that I'm not a sex addict, and I'm working with sex addicts. And he said, well, no, you don't have to have cancer to treat cancer, Carol. And, you know, most of our classmates really were in good recovery, and they had the addiction themselves. They were in good recovery, Mm -hmm. so they really knew from a personal standpoint what this was like, similar to how you knew what EMDR was like because you had gone through it. And so the second thing I asked him is I said, now, do you think it's a problem that I'm a woman and I'm treating probably mostly male sex addicts? And he said, no, I actually... Don't tell anybody else I said this. So now I'm telling 600,000 open downloads. Um, He (laughs) said, I think it's easier for men to talk to women about this issue. When they know that you're not going to be judgmental, it's a natural fit. So I thought that was really incredible. That gave me a boost of confidence. And then I said, well, if you were going to tell me one thing that you believe would make me go from a good therapist to a great therapist in terms of my treatment, what would you say? And he said, Carol, I'll tell you, you should never treat sex addicts in a vacuum. Always run groups for sex addicts because, look, just like you said, Sean, they they run the group. They know what they need. They know how to get there. We're just the facility facilitators to make that happen and they're so appreciative because if they're in 12-step fellowship and things like that they really don't get to crosstalk and so in a therapy group they can share their strength hope and and wisdom and also ask for help i think i think there's another really important component and sex addiction lives in secrecy and it lives in shame And when you facilitate a group and you bring a group of men or women together, and, for example, I'm running a group of six men right now and then five women, the men, just for example, the six men that come in, um, you know, I have to... I have to talk to them first and explain what's happening. But when they come in the room and we start, um, they hold each other accountable they are each other's accountability partner and they do not feel shame and isolation when they are in a room with five other people. And when one says, I won't share my phone or I won't give the passcodes to my phone, four other people say, why won't you share your phone? Why won't you give the passcode? I don't have to say a word because the other addicts know what the person is bargaining with and what they're bargaining for. And so together, um, the group that I'm running right now, these men um, communicate with each other through the week. They meet for coffee or dinner. They check in with each other. They share a daily devotional together. And this was just, I just facilitated 
them getting to know each other. But they decided that they needed more because there isn't anything else in our area, the online you know, phone meetings. But they needed to be plugged in and not feel such shame and feel accountability. And that's the beautiful thing about a group, which is also the beautiful thing about the group of women that are their partners who feel such shame and isolation that who are they going to talk to about it? So when there are four or five other women and myself, and we're talking about your strength, taking care of yourself, taking self-care, exercising, food, talking to other women, meeting for coffee, then suddenly you're not so isolated. And that is the glory of group. Oh, absolutely. You nailed it. That's exactly right. So now you said, obviously, that sex addiction is, you know, it is mirrored in sex, shame, and secrets. And that's why you feel that EMDR is such a positive influence in changing that. So I want you to explain how does EMDR work with addicts that experience sex, shame, and secrets? Because their, sh- their shame is so deeply embedded, right? And they, they have started, sex addiction doesn't start in a bubble. It starts very early on in some sort of arousal template that kind of unfolds in a boy or a girl when they're young. And then the shame feeds it. And then the secrecy feeds it. And then they are telling a narrative, which is, Um, One of Patrick Karn's worksheets is a fabulous worksheet of a dark passenger. And it's like, how do you live in the light of day? But what is the dark passenger is the secret that you're hiding. And so EMDR helps them unwind their secrets. And it helps them feel less shame. First of all, they're sharing it with me here. And I have no judgment on anything that they've done, and I just sit with them and hold it for them while they process it. And the EMDR, the processing is the least of it. The beginning of it is talking through the story, talking through the negative core belief about yourself, that you're bad, that you're not worthy, that you're full of shame, that you don't deserve to be here, that you can't be redeemed. That's the negative belief that we have to process out. And if you don't, if you just keep talking, and sometimes we do that for a very long time, talk about it, and I hope we're getting somewhere. But it just doesn't feel like it. And as a clinician, when you've been sitting with them long enough, you can feel when you're not getting somewhere. So then you say, well, let's, Let's talk about processing in a different way. And immediately when you start moving your fingers or tapping or, you know, whatever device you're going to use, I I prefer fingers because I feel more emotionally invested and closer to the client. Um, When you do it, and you do it in a swift movement, their brain connects with other beliefs that are true. And it overrides these negative core beliefs that they have, they keep 
fostering because, for example, when you use pornography or you um, use prostitution or whatever's going on, the relief is immediate, but the shame is almost as immediate. And so when you're processing, you're trying to remove the shame that is their core belief and elevate them to feeling, I'm okay, I did the best I could, I'm trying to get better, I'm doing better. And that's what EMDR does for a person that's kind of stuck in that negative belief, if that makes sense. (laughs) Oh, yes, absolutely. And so you identified some of those core beliefs, I'm not good enough. Um, And so when you get um, negative beliefs, I know that in EMDR, you really look for three primary um, messages. One might be, I am responsible for what has happened to me, for my trauma. Mm -hmm. Right. And so clearly, or do you remember the other ones? Um, I'm responsible. I can't protect myself. Um, I'm unlovable. I should have done something, I'm trapped. You know, it's just a negative, irrational starts with, you know, your survival instinct is I don't deserve to exist. And it goes all the way up to I can't protect myself. You know, and in between there is I'm responsible, I'm unlovable, I'm worthless. So it's just a, you know, it's just a party of all that stuff. And it's irrational. all that's a Negative cognition, you know, the thing you believe about yourself that doesn't change and it colors your entire world and certainly colors how you feel about yourself. And so after you and I work with a client and they process their trauma, and you said it earlier when you said sometimes you start with the very present day issue or sometimes you start with the, the first time that showed up or the worst time that showed up. But when you process all that stuff, they are able to process all of those other issues that kind of fell, that got sandwiched, you know, before, during, and after the current day problem. And that is why it is so, so very, very effective. Now, you and I both know that your work is three quarters of the way done at that point, but then we have to instill a positive cognition. And, you know, it's interesting. Last week I was talking with a therapist who uses EFT, emotional freedom technique, and she teaches her clients how to stay in the moment with their cognitive issue. Maybe that's, I have done some horrible things, and then their hope for the future. But I know I am capable of changing that and being a very good person. And so they, they have that negative belief and they have that positive belief. So we talked to our listening audience a little bit about what a positive cognition is all about. Well, that's super fun. <laughs> that's, that's the good part is, you know, we go from, you know, if you're going to your survival, inst- your base, I don't deserve to exist, to the positive, I deserve to exist, or the one that you stated, I'm responsible, and sometimes it's for everything, then your adaptive or your positive belief would be, I can recognize appropriate responsibility, or I'm okay as I am, I can accept myself, I did the best I could. 
So those are positive beliefs. And one of the really good techniques for that is tapping it in. So when I'm sitting with a client and we're through the processing, and and of course I always ask for permission before we start as we're going along. Is my chair okay? Is where I'm sitting okay? Am I too close to you? Do my fingers feel comfortable to you? I never assume that the client feels comfortable with me in their space, right? And so I have to ask them, is this okay with you? And if they say, well, I'm not really comfortable or I'm, this is good, then we move on. And then I say, before we ever sit down to begin the processing, I say, so there's this thing called tapping in. And if I could explain that to you is when we get to a positive cognition, something that you believe about yourself, I would like to touch your knees very gently and have you close your eyes and I will tap in for you with my fingertips that positive cognition, that positive belief that you have about yourself, which is I'm okay as I am. I can learn from my mistakes. I did the best I could, whatever the positive is. And I just have them sit and close their eyes and I tap from one knee to the other, almost feather-like. And just repeat and repeat and repeat, you know, for until I'm comfortable, till I feel like that's good. And then I stop and just sit back a little bit and they open their eyes. And it just is like a powerful moment for them. And it, it kind of, th- that processes as well. And that's how the tapping part works for me. Well, you know, it's interesting because obviously that emotional freedom technique is also about tapping and, you know, mm-hmm. it's tapping on the meridians of the body, of the face, and in different places, similar to acupuncture, but in a way that instills new messages. And so mm-hmm. it, we're doing the same thing with EFT as we are with EMDR, but in a different way. And that is what is so unique about the body. Even though the body keeps score of the trauma, it it also is willing to release it if shown how to do it. It is. And, you know, I think you have to always keep in your mind, what, what am I doing here? What am I doing here? Whether it's EMDR, it's EFT, whether it's, Whatever, whatever, CBT, mindfulness, whatever, you just have to remember that you're sitting with a human being that is in an enormous amount of pain. And so you have to give yourself time. Don't rush it. Give yourself time to let them process and let the story unfold. Because as clinicians, I'm, I'm well, myself, I'm always very conscious of the time and the money that people are spending in a session and the amount of time and money that they're investing in their mental health. But I also know that it took years to get here and it takes them a very long amount of time to feel safe. And you have to allow that time because if you push the story or you slap the EMDR on them right off the bat, you're dead in the water. These are human beings within a large amount of pain. So just hold them in the palm of your hand and let them tell their story. 
and then you do really well. I absolutely agree. They're not um, science experiments. They are human beings that really are wanting to feel some sense of relief and to learn how to live again. And addiction steals that from them. So I'm glad you brought that up. Now, let me ask you. I'm wondering, Sean, if people wanted to find out more about you, how could they do that? I know that you have a website that's FreshRootsFamilyCounseling.com. And again, that is www.FreshRootsFamilyCounseling.com. And you also are um, available on Facebook, right? I am. It's just Sean Kispert, LPC. And I'm also on Psychology Today. Um, so I can be found pretty easily. I have a pretty strange last name, so it's not hard to Google me. Well, go ahead and spell that for our listening audience so they can have the proper spelling. So my first name is Sean, S-H-A-W-N, and my last name is Kispert, and that is K-I-S-P-E-R-T. There you go. And um, do you offer consultation via Zoom or phone coaching or um, email? I do. I do. And the state of Arkansas, where, where I reside, is pretty strict. Um, but I do have a distance counseling license. The state makes you, in Arkansas, the state makes you sit for an oral exam for that. And so, yes, I do offer that. And I can be reached by email through our website, um, and I'll email back for sure, yeah. Excellent. So as we end for today, obviously you really want to help anybody who's carrying their own secrets and their deception, their shame, because of their current or their past events. What would you say to our sex addicts who are listening right now? I'm sorry, I missed that last part. Yeah, what would you tell them as we end for today? What kind of hope, strength, and recovery can you share with our sex addicts who feel that shame and they worry about the secrets they've been keeping? I would say that people already know your secrets. If you think you're keeping secrets, that's a secret you're telling yourself because people know your secrets. You're not hiding them. So come into the light, make a phone call, email, do whatever it takes, and just take the first step. And whoever answers the phone or whoever answers the email will help you walk into the light. You do not need to stay by yourself. You you can do this. You can do this. I work with people who do it every day, and they are amazing. And, you know, you carry the same message that I do because I say when an addict is in recovery, they are healthier and they are um, emotionally more available than 95% of people out there because they've done the hard work to learn how to do that. And so... You know, it, addiction may have brought them into the darkness, but recovery brings them into the light. 
And so I want to thank you, Sean, for everything you're doing and for explaining how EMDR can really help with shame, sex, and secrets. Um, I look forward to hearing more from you and keep, keep doing the great work you're doing. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate being on with you tonight. Absolutely. I was telling my listening audience that I had seen some of your posts on the listserv, and I was really impressed because you really do have techniques that expedite the process of recovery. And, um, you know, nothing can, can replace the work between a, a healthy professional and a client. But what we do and how we do it can really expedite that sense of recovery. So thanks again. Thank you. Have a good evening. Hey, you too. All right. Well, so that, again, was Sean Kispert. And I want to give you her email address in case you didn't have thing to write on. You can reach her at Sean at FreshRootsFamilyCounseling.com and her website is www.FreshRootsFamilyCounseling.com and as she said, you can find her on Facebook it's S-H-A-W-N K-I-S-P-E-R-T and I'm telling you, I sing the praises of EMDR all the time it is the most researched um, treatment modality there is and you know I do a lot of Zoom and I'll be talking about yeah I can help you with things and interestingly enough my clients will say well can we do EMDR on Zoom and they say no you have to be able to an EMDR therapist um, it's not something we can do on Zoom or on phone coaching so really go to the ITAP um, Actually, that would be sexhelp.com and look up an ITAP therapist who does EMDR. And that stands again for Eye Movement Desensitization Reprocessing. I'm Carol Jurgensen Sheets, a.k.a. Carol the Coach. Thanks for being with us. And as I say at the end of every show, you know it, you can repeat it. There will only be one of you at all times. So fearlessly, have the courage to be yourself. Make it a good week, and I'll see you back here next Monday night for Sex Help with Carol, the coach.